Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And it is our second cocktail day. Uh, day? Episode? Delivery? <laughs> Announcement? We're here. We have another cocktail. We have another cocktail. This one goes back to our roots, y'all. It goes back to good old season one. But before we disclose what the cocktail is, I think we should tell everyone what we paired it with because oh. the charcuterie board that you have put together the is charcuterie beautiful. Charcuterie? The charcuterie board um, consists of pickles, like small little pickles. Yes. Uh, garlic stuffed olives. Yes. Cheese and Pringles. <laughs> Folks, if you do not have Pringles in your charcuterie board, you are doing it wrong. Walk. Run, don't walk. I always do that backwards. <laughs> I do, too. I had a bunch of pickled stuff because we had a housewarming party and we had a Bloody Mary bar. So I just have a bunch of stuff in jars in my fridge. Lots of pickles, lots of olives. As I was sitting down and rubbing on OB and, like, watching you put this together, I got really excited when you picked up the olives. Mm-hmm. So... No complaints here. Also, if you can hear me crunching, I apologize. I'm trying to back away, but <laughs> so the good. flavors kind of transition us into our cocktail. Cocktail, you guys. So if you are not a patron, what are you doing? Help support us. Help support the people who make this show happen. All of the proceeds from Patreon go to paying for all of the people uh, who edit the podcast and and kind of work behind the scenes. So shout out to them. They're amazing. Jack Wowza. Jason Derulo, Jacob, <laughs> Derulo. Jacob, B. <laughs> Jacob Beeson, um, everybody, you rock. We appreciate you. you. Rock my world. So we are drinking the Larry Flint Filthy Martini. Martini. We are. So I'm having vodka. Karian's having gin. Mm-hmm. The best part is, is that you can do it however you want. But girl, mine's got a lot. Of uh, olive juice in it. I was about to say, do not leave out the olives. Go heavy on the olives. Mm-hmm. We are olive people. I've also got the, um, what is it? The pickled olive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see mm-hmm. on my little stick? Or the pickled onion? Onion. Sorry, onion. That's what I meant. <clears throat> like the little onion that looks like an olive? Yes. Exactly. Right. She's here. Guys, it's been so fun to create and talk about and slowly release and drink (laughs) these cocktails. So the pasta recipe is what we did in season one. Season two, we're doing things a little bit different. So we're having a good time with it. We hope you guys are too. And it gets better with every drink. It truly does. It does. You know, and, and martinis are one of those things where, like, you can do, like, an espresso martini you can do all kinds of different martinis, but this is just classic. Classic. We're into the classics. We're, you know, we're classic. We're classy. Classy broads, right? Classy broads. So we're super excited about that. So cheers. 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 Tink. Clink. Uh, what else has been going on with you? Um, well, I am down to one pickle and really concerned about that. So we're going to have to fix that at the end of, or at intermission. Sure. We need more more pickles, more uh, martini. Um, what else is new? Okay. So, to go with our food and drink, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you this really gross thing. Okay. Because great. they pair together well, right? Beautiful. Okay. So, I'm old now. And um, 
my partner and I do this thing where we explain whenever something hurts what we would like to do with that body part. Okay. So Tell this me uh, more. Yep, yep. So this morning I woke up and I'm super stiff between my shoulders and my neck mm -hmm. and like down the top part of my spine. Mm -hmm. So I would like to just remove my spine temporarily. Okay. Uh um twist it like a Rubik's cube. Oh. And just like between every single, you know, just yeah, twist yeah, yeah. everyone like a Rubik's cube. Mm -hmm. Let it soak in like a hot bubble bath. Oh. And then put it back into my and body. Put it back in. And I feel like that would just fix all the things. Ew. Yeah. But it's a thing that we've done for <laughs> over a year now. And it brings me so much joy. Like just imagining how I would want to fix this piece of my body because I feel very hunched right now. Yeah. Well, it's only going to get worse because the closet, guys, is still going strong. We're still in a closet. We're still here. We're still, still here. Still queer. It may be July. Still living in the closet. Yep. Sorry. But no, but back pain is tough, though. And that's a good, like, visual. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to crack the bones. Yeah. Do you have any body parts that you would like to do something with? Um, uh, my, okay, so <clears throat> my skin is mm. really dry. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really dry. I ran out of my moisturizer, and I've ordered it. It just hasn't been here yet. Oh, no. I know. So I would like to peel off my face mm, mm -hmm. and soak it <laughs> in like a <laughs> like a milk bath. Oh. With the little flower petals on it. Oh, like little rose petals. Mm -hmm. I and can then see reattach that, being that really, shit. really, really soothing. Yeah. I feel like I could take my face off. I do. Yeah. And I've and I it's at the end of the day and I have my foundation that's mm -hmm. just now a part of my body. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the I feel most free when I do my skincare routine at night. I just Ooh. feel, it's like, mm. I put on, I literally took a bath the other day and I put on Enya and I had my lemon water, which is like my new, like my new best. I think lemon water is my new love language because I'm when, like when I really love Ray, I'll bring him some lemon water. Oh, that's it so It is sweet. so refreshing. If you have not had lemon water recently, just go have some, it, have a glass. I, I feel like, I feel like one with nature. You feel hyper refreshed. I do. Like, it's a step beyond just like water and hydrated. Granola, crunchy. Like, I feel like I'm an REI spokesperson. <laughs> so can I... I love cucumber water. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like it's the most slept on. Lemon water gets a lot of accolades. They tell you to drink lemon water in the morning, take a shot of lemon juice or whatever, turmeric, you know, all the things. But no one's been talking about cucumber water lately. Nobody's talking about the cukes. No. What are we doing? Nobody's talking about this issue. No one is talking about cucumber water. So here we are talking about cucumber water. Let's raise Go awareness. Go and treat yourself to some <laughs> cucumber or lemon water, pickle with, juice. With your Larry Flint martini. <laughs> because when your martini is Larry Flint filthy, you do need some hydration. You right. Because she's right. salty. Mm -hmm. She's salty. Um, yeah. And it all comes back there. <laughs> <laughs> so we are a psychology and history podcast. For those of you, this is your first whose episode. This is the first that you are listening to. Welcome. What is happening? So Karen goes first to talk about some psychology stuff and she's chewing her last bit of her pickle. I'm pretty sure this is like radio 101 where you don't eat. Someone presented me with a delicious carefully curated charcuterie board yes, i cannot yes. be held responsible <laughs> okay so that was delicious i apologize for anyone who may have heard the crunching 
I get Everyone's it. Sensory issues are tough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us. And actually, the lemon water, the Enya, the baths, mm-hmm. self-care, cracking your spine like a Rubik's Cube, all of those things lead into my topic for today. Wow. That's sort lucky. Of. Sort of. <laughs> It's lucky that I started it and picked the topic and then right. get to go first. Yep. Super lucky. Okay. So normally I give you like a quiz or like a fun lead in, but today I'm just going to tell you what the hell we're talking about. Great. Because I never get the answer. So. <laughs> this week we are talking about burnout. Ooh. So definitely fitting that it's hard to come up with a fun intro when you're talking about burnout. God. Right? Yes. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. The American Psychological Association, this might be the fastest I've ever quoted. Yeah, right. The APA defines burnout as, quote, the physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion accompanied by decreased motivation, lowered performance, and negative attitude towards oneself and others. Mm -hmm. In 2019, the World Health Organization defined burnout as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. God, this one hits hard. Have you ever experienced burnout? Girl, you know the answer to that. <laughs> Girl, I don't know. I can't think of a person who has not experienced burnout. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, yeah, things change. And, and also, like, specifically in work, yeah. uh, the last couple years have been just cuckoo bananas. And a lot of things have changed, and there's been staffing issues, and Mm -hmm. people are new, people are getting laid off, people are getting more responsibilities. Right. So Kind of a ping pong. This is later in my notes, but I'm actually going to go ahead and talk about it now, because you set it up so beautifully. Before COVID, we had to travel to meetings. Like, we had to Mm -hmm. physically attend a meeting. So, like, right after COVID hit, you know, we weren't going to to meetings anymore. Like everyone was Mm -hmm. figuring out how do you work from home? So you might have a phone call or like the random meeting for those of you who figured out virtual meetings faster than the social work field did. But now it's just back to back to back meetings Mm -hmm. because you're just logging in. You're not like you don't have to get up and physically move. Yeah. So you don't have time to process meetings before or after. Like you're just constantly going. It's exhausting. Yeah. So the term was first used in 1975 by U.S. psychologist Herbert J. Freudenberger. Mm, gorgeous. Isn't that a great I name? I think I'm going to name my Herbert Freudenberger. Herbert Freudenberger. Sounds like an insult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure that he got an earful of it yeah, like the whole time the he was growing up. <laughs> Little Herbie. Uh, Herbie. I do like the name Herbie. It's what cute. Was, what was the car? Um, Herbie. Herbie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The little bug? Yeah. It was Herbie, right? Yeah. I think. And then Jennifer, uh, not Jennifer. What's the girl that was in Mean Girls? She, re- uh, they, like, Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. They did like a remake of it. Yeah. And, you know, just let things, do, you know. Herbie the love bug? Herbie the love bug. Do you remember like punching people? Girl, I had to punch bugs. I used to walk, like, drive down the street and see people punching each other. Oh. It was so funny. Was it a Herbie? You don't have me second guessing. I think it was Herbie. I'm going to go set ahead and say it's fact. Also, I think a couple episodes ago, I said that the guy in Pretty Woman was the same guy that dies in um, Jurassic Park, and they are not the same person at all. <laughs> Jack Wowza texted me. He's like, get it together. <laughs> 
Although they were both in Seinfeld. I'm so glad that Jack Wiles is keeping us yes. straight. Yeah. In line, at least. Okay. So, and yes, it is Herbie Lo- the Love Bug. Oh, good. So I we are correct about me that. Up at night. Jack Wiles will not have to text us after this and tell us to get it together. Perfect. At least not for that one. Um... So, Herbert Freudenberger used this term to refer to workers in clinics who had heavy caseloads. He observed symptoms of burnout as feeling exhausted, unable to recover from minor illnesses, so like getting a cold and it lasting forever, frequent headaches, frequent GI problems, sleep disturbances, shortness of breath, um, which all sound like trauma symptoms when you really start Mm -hmm. to think about them. And then some behaviors might include irritability. Heightened emotional response, so being quick to cry or quick to anger. Feeling suspicious or paranoid about your colleagues. Mm. Substance use, um, stubbornness, rigid thinking, an unwillingness to listen to others, a negative attitude, and appearing depressed. Mm. Talk to me about crying. Do you cry at work? Do you let people see you cry at work, I guess, is the better, more? Um, Not since my not since i took my new role okay um in my previous role yes Mm -hmm. but i don't think it was related to burnout i think it was related to like being hyper empathetic yes um because i was working of course with kids in foster care Mm -hmm. and you hear horrible things Mm yeah um you're an actual saint (laughs) 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 i hope to never ever ever i that's a whole other episode yeah. about how we destroyed the foster care system mm-hmm. because it is so, so broken. But kudos to everyone still working in it because yeah. you all are incredible. I don't know how you do it. Cheers. I really don't know how people do it for like their entire career. Like yeah. I know someone who's been in working in the foster care system for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. How the fuck? I don't know. What resilient skills do you have that the rest of us are lacking? Speaking from experience, I've had to just completely cut off my empathy. Yeah. Uh, not completely cut off, but really dialed it down. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm super empathetic, too. But, yeah. like, sheesh. No, you can only do so much. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that for sure. But I think, yeah, you have to, like, scale it back some. But then, like, when you're working with kids especially, how do you scale it back? back and still be engaged Mm -hmm. you know yeah that's fair i don't know how you do it i couldn't i don't think i could work with kids working with kids is tough i don't like other people's kids they're all right (laughs) (laughs) all right so here's the thing about burnout we're gonna set the stage you are a teacher or social worker or service provider we're gonna go with social worker obviously thinking about your caseload so as a social worker you might have a caseload of 25 kids Mm mm-hmm None of whom you like. Correct. You love them, but you don't like them. You are supposed to see every child on your caseload every month. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's for like at least an hour and a half. Yeah. Right. Well, and you only, there's only 20 working days in a month. My literal next sentence is in a typical month, you have about 20 working days. Boom. Yeah. Okay. So you have to see um, five more kids than you have working days in a month. So you have to double up. Ideally, they're placed near each other, so you can go see one than the other. You have to be in person? Yes. Oh, wow. Shit. Yeah. So, most social workers are now back fully in person. Okay. So, you have to see them in person every month. Okay. When I was working with kids, they were placed all over the state. 
I'm, the state. So I was like going to Asheville, I then going that. to Wilmington, all in the same month. On top of that, you are supposed to be documenting what was done and what needs to be done, attend meetings about the kids, take the kids to medical appointments, connect with the kids, hear their stories, help them process their trauma. You are then experiencing secondary and vicarious trauma. And then you get paid $45,000 a year. Oh, yeah. So as a single person living in our state, $45,000 a year isn't horrible at this point in time. But on top of that, you might have medical bills, Mm -hmm. car payments, one or more kids. um, And suddenly, not only are you now thinking about how are you going to see all of the kids on your caseload, but also how are you going to pay your bills, buy food, and you're working 10 plus hour days to see the multiple kids in a day. Right. And you probably have your own kids. Right. So how do you cook, clean, and then have time to visit family and friends? Yeah. You best bet that we're going to be irritable, quick to anger or cry, and have a negative attitude. Mm -hmm. That shit's hard. Yeah. So according to positive psychology, which is ironic because these are very negative statistics, (laughs) individuals who report experiencing burnout are 63% more likely to take sick days, Mm -hmm. even if they're not sick. Mm -hmm. 23% more likely to visit the emergency room. Because they wait, they wait till it gets bad. Exactly, yep. and they're less likely to approach their superiors about how to improve their performance. Mm. They're about thirteen percent less confident in their job performance, and almost three times as likely to leave their jobs as their non-burnt out. That makes co-workers. so much sense. If you're tasked with doing twenty things, there's no way you're going to be able to do twenty things really, really well. You're going to do maybe 10 things really well, and the other 10 are not taking priority. Right. But it's almost impossible to be everywhere at once. It is impossible to be everywhere at once. And we're going to talk about that, too. On March 3rd, a report came out with new findings that 89% of American workers have experienced burnout within the past year. Yeah. So, which makes sense. We're coming out of the pandemic. The official pandemic ended in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Woo! Which is, I mean, we started this podcast in the, you know, height of the pandemic. Yeah. Literally the height of the it's pandemic. Like an, it's a bookend. Right. Also, it seems like a dream. Yes. Fever dream. Um, small aside, so I was watching a TikTok recently that was like proof that there are time travelers is if you look at 2020 and all the weird shit that happened, like murder hornets show up. And then all of a sudden, murder hornets are gone and no one ever talks about them again. So it's like a time traveler came back and was like, oop. Oh, they're like, they're back quite far enough. enough. Yeah. (laughs) Then there was like the toilet paper shortage and then boom, it was fixed. Can I just say, just while we're spiraling. Yeah. I went to the grocery store today. I bought toilet paper, paper towels, a loaf of bread, a Coke Zero, and salsa. It was $67. You are kidding no. me. No. What Fuck the you love actual food. fuck? I know. I mean, granted, I bought like the big thing of toilet paper, the big thing. We go through so much toilet paper. I'm like, I don't even, I'm at work all day. Where is this right. going? Right. That's insane. Yeah. $60. <clears throat> 67 Read me that list one more time. Toilet paper, paper towels, loaf of bread, Coke Zero, salsa damn damn anyway that's my Ugh. i texted ray i was mad good you should be mad yeah. 
You should be mad. But then I did the thing where I had cash, so I paid part in cash, which I've now been conditioned to, like, think that cash, like, doesn't count. Right. Like, unless it's coming out of my bank account. Which is a problem, yeah. It's, like, not real. Yeah. So, technically, it was only, like, $20 that I had to put on my card, which makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) But I see how you got there because I've been trained the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we all freak out now when we look at our bank account. But if it came out of my bank account before I go in the store... Mm -hmm. And I check and then look after, even mm-hmm. if I paid in cash, it, it doesn't feel weird. Yeah, or it doesn't same. count. Yeah, it doesn't count. Okay, so back to the findings. Uh, 98 or 89% experienced burnout in the past year, and 77% are currently experiencing burnout in their right now job, their current job, which makes sense, right? So according to the American Psychological Association, burnout is the result of performing at a high level until stress and tension take their toll. Mm -hmm. This happens with extreme and prolonged physical and mental exertion or an overburdening of workload. Yeah. It is most often observed in professionals who work in service-oriented vocations, social workers, teachers, medical professionals, specifically nurses, emergency professionals, because they're just putting um, in those hours. Yeah. I want to talk about that, too. We can talk about that. Retail, <clears throat> fast food workers, um, and so many more. Mm-hmm. What were you wanting to add? I think that there are so many things that people take for granted. And if you stack them up on top of each other, not having those things will result in burnout. Like lunch breaks for example yes disconnecting for that small amount of time going outside yes sensory deprivation it seems like sometimes when all you're you're like doing is like glued to a certain task yeah um and then also doing the work of five people right i think that's a huge disservice so yesterday i logged in at 8 30 which is you know a normal time for me to log in. Mm-hmm. I texted you at 7 and told you I finally logged off, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's, what, 10 and a half hours. Yeah. I did not have a lunch break, and I did not step outside at all during that time. Wow. Yeah. So my partner and I talked about it, and she was like, what do you want to do tonight? And I was like, I want to be outside. Yeah. Preferably somewhere with a beer. So we went, Amen. had a salad, sat down, had a beer. A beer and a salad. That sounds amazing. It was so good. A beer and a salad at this little spot that we found right next to our house. But it has outdoor seating and a stout on tap. And sign me all the fucking way up. Mm -hmm. Like, we will be there every night. There's something about a patio. I love a good patio. And a a hot summer night. And I need that. Not Mm -hmm. living, you know, near downtown where things are happening. Mm -hmm. It's nice to finally have a patio again. I'm glad. I'm happy for you. Yeah. Have you found a new patio around here to hang out? No, not particularly. We got to drive a little bit. I have some recommendations. Okay. Considering the locale. Yeah. Okay. Um, But you're right. Like, not having those things leads to burnout because you are not taking time to disconnect throughout the day. You are not taking time for yourself throughout the day. Um, and the expectations to perform are mm-hmm. unrealistic. Yeah. I think also there's there's one thing about working a nine-hour shift and going home and mentally disconnecting. Yeah. If you can't mentally disconnect when you're done with work, you're working 24 hours a day. If yeah. you're dreaming about work, if you're just going through it on the couch (laughs) oh my gosh i had a person that i supervise who came up to me and told me that she had a dream that i was being yelled at (gasps) 
Oh, no. And I was like, okay, I need you to, number one, stop dreaming about work. Uh And number two, stop dreaming about me and my stress level at work. (laughs) I did not realize that you were experiencing that. She's like, oh, I didn't know you were actually stressed. I would just have this dream. And I was like, well, you are hyper aware. (laughs) And I need you to not do that. That's funny. Yeah, I know. It does seem oddly personal to dream about people at work. But if that's your whole life... Exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, I used to dream about the kids I worked with all the time. I bet. It took me like two months of not being a foster care social worker to stop dreaming of the kids I worked with. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But but you're right. Like, if you're not able to come home and truly unplug, then mm-hmm. you're, you're not, not working. And the lack of being able to disconnect, the lack of taking your breaks, the, and the yes. workload piling up... All of those can relate, like, or you can have sleeping problems, you can have Mm -hmm. weight gain, you Mm -hmm. can have just, you know, mental health issues. Well, and it damages your relationships with other people, because if you can't, like, unplug your brain from work, then Mm -hmm. it's really hard to connect with your friends. Yup. It's hard to connect with your partners, or your parents, or your besties. Like everything's everything turns into an obligation. Yeah. When you don't have time for anything else. Right. Right. When you feel like you have to do everything. Mm -hmm. It's no longer fun. It's no longer enjoyable. Yeah. This is particularly true with therapists and counselors who are doing trauma work with clients and often feel overwhelmed by the, quote, cumulative secondary trauma of witnessing the effects of like the effects of whatever their clients have experienced. Yep. Yeah. So burnout is also experienced by athletes when continuously exposed to stress associated with performance without commiserate award uh, rewards or rest. Hmm. Oh, okay. So like thinking of youth athletes mm-hmm. and like how go, go, go it is all the time, like waking up at six o'clock in the morning to work out or to go practice your sport, then going to school and then having practice after school. The thing with athletes, too, is that nothing's ever good enough. Yeah. That sucks. Because that's bred into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfectionism is a really takes a toll on people. I was looking at concert dates, and I don't know how some of these artists go from city to city and do, like, these bomb... Like you T-Swizzle? Know, like T, like TT. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, like, it's like a whole theatrical production. Every time. And you're moving every, every day to a new place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... We've talked about burnout being related to unrealistic work expectations, right? But let's think of some other reasons that people burn out. So this perfectionism, I think, is a really like key component. The unrealistic expectations for performers, but for everybody of like going back to back, night after night, day after day, and putting a hundred percent into everything you do. Mm-hmm. But also micromanagement. Yeah. Uh, poor instructions or poorly defined roles and tasks. So always feeling like you're missing something or you're having to like work harder to figure it out. Isolation can mm-hmm. lead to burnout. A lack of support or unfair treatment. A job that is poorly aligned to your values. Mm, yeah. Which has really resonated for me in a bunch of different ways. Um, as we were talking about earlier, the foster care system being so broken and like working within foster care and seeing all the ways that like we're contributing to the brokenness is tough. Yeah, for sure. Or working for an industry you don't particularly love, you know, or like believe um, in. 
the town next door has like the you know to is like the tobacco, tobacco yeah you know one of the large tobacco companies i mean nobody feels passionate about that right but right pays the bills exactly And then we all know that folks are overworked and underpaid. So it doesn't matter how much you love your job or how well it is aligned to your values if you're severely underpaid. Mm -hmm. So back to the study that was released in March of this year, 77% of those who were surveyed believe that their employers aren't doing anything or at least enough to prevent burnout among their staff. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I feel I have so much to say about this. Please, like keep interrupting me. So... I have found that the biggest disservice within companies is the lack of communication about what's oh, going on. Oh, my God. Say that one more time for the people in the for back. For the people in the back. It's about the communication. Because, of course, people don't think that they're doing anything because they're not involved in those conversations. Right. So unless you have a manager who is willing to take the time to explain why something is important, how this leads to this leads to this. Yeah. I always talk metaphorically like with my employees about how... X, Y, and Z is a puzzle. And these are how these things fit together. Like, you have to be transparent. So I was just having a conversation with someone who recently left their job. And they said that they didn't feel like their supervisor or management valued their position enough because someone else had left their team Mm -hmm. like six months before. And there was no mention of replacing that person. So during their exit interview... They said that they wished that someone had communicated what the plan was for that position Mm -hmm. because it feels like you don't care about me and my work if you think I can just pick up somebody else's work on top of my already full-time job. Yeah. Makes total sense. And the manager was like, well, there wasn't any update because we haven't been able to find someone to fill that role yet. And this person said, well, then tell me there's no update, Mm -hmm. but don't tell me nothing. Like, communicate about something to tell me that you still prioritize this or you still care about, like, how much extra stuff I'm taking on. Yeah. I think managers should put an hour, 30 minutes on their calendars each week to do or even bi-weekly once a month whatever to do a touch point with yeah. each of their employees absolutely That's necessary for them to ask questions mm-hmm. for them to give updates yeah i went and sat at a coffee shop for five hours earlier i think it was last week actually and i emailed every person i work with and just said i'm going to be at this coffee shop if anyone would like to come and just sit and do work together or talk not talk ask questions mm-hmm. have good coffee whatever the hell you want to do i'm going to be here and i had multiple people either text me and let me know that they would like to be there but can't because mm-hmm. they had other meetings or show up mm-hmm. like i had several people show up and they were like i don't actually want or need anything i just want to be around somebody yeah like I think that there's so much value in that connection. Yeah. And all it takes is a little communication of, hey, I'm going to be at this place at this time. Mm -hmm. If you want to come hang out, hang out. Yeah. Working from home and you you work from home. I don't. I've never worked from home, but I can see how isolating that would be on top of the workload and the lack of connection and communication. Uh, And then I think there's also like a like a weird... um, power dynamic about like people who are let's say are you know want to get promoted Mm -hmm. it's like who can work harder and who can like be give themselves yeah most right that's definitely a thing too so like online you know you're just online all the time yeah 
And our online system like tells how long you've been away from your computer mm -hmm. or when you last logged on, how long it is until you have another meeting. So that makes, does that make you paranoid about like actually taking a break? Because Are you afraid that somebody's going to be like, where's Karen? Um, I have a much better balance about my life right now. So, and my supervisor does a good job of like take care of whatever you need to take care yeah. of first so i'm not particularly worried about it good but i know that other folks in our organization are yeah um okay. but i think that that's really common too though it's I like so too. just have the a little uh, you know away thing in your email and it automatically pops up like just how long you've been away mm -hmm. um but that paranoia i understand where that comes from yeah a thousand percent yeah but turnover is expensive and burnout is literally the number one reason that employees leave their jobs mm -hmm. <laughs> burnout affects your relationships it affects your relationship with others your mm -hmm. relationship with yourself your ability to do things etc okay so how do we fix it mm. tell me write this down everyone everyone take out your pen and your notebook and put on your listening ears because it's chronic and it's impacting most of the folks in our circles mm -hmm. right we all know folks who are burnt out so how do we address it? First, you have to identify that you are burnt out and the source of your burnout. Hmm. So we often associate burnout with job-related stress, but it's not always that. You can also experience burnout around school, mm -hmm. um, having a rigorous schedule, or burnout if you're caring for a loved one, burnout if um, you are a new parent without the ability to be on parental leave your job may actually be manageable but it's not yeah in comparison to what your um home life is demanding of you so trying to do too much in general can create an environment for burnout there's also a negative correlation between burnout and happiness according to the international journal of environmental research and public health so being burnt out has a negative correlation with happiness mm -hmm. makes sense um that is not to say that you could not still be a joyful person, obviously. Oh, yeah. Joy is a state of being. Happiness is an emotion. But identify what changes you can make to lighten your load immediately. Trying to do it all isn't realistic. Um, and it's especially hard when you feel like you can't let go of anything. So the best advice I've ever heard is when you're juggling a bunch of things, you can't treat them as if they're all glass. You have to figure out what you're juggling that is made of rubber. The things that are glass, if they fall, they will break. And it's hard to put them back together. It takes a lot more yeah. work to put them back together. These are like your friendships, or at least for me. Mm -hmm. Friendships, relationships, family, my personal needs. Um, some of my supervisory stuff, like those are relationships with colleagues I'm not willing to break. Mm -hmm. But juggling things that are rubber, that if they fall, it might suck, but things will keep going. For example, like right now we're doing performance reviews at work, mm -hmm. and they're due on Friday. And I'm running late. I have one person that I was not able to catch. It's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Like, if I, I dropped the ball on getting her performance review done in time for the Friday deadline, but it's scheduled for Monday. That's so weird. You do them, like, mid-quarter, too. That's so strange. Um, they're due in July. And we have a huge agency. Got it. Yep. Okay. So all the supervisors turn them into their supervisor who turns them into their supervisor. Got it. Yeah. So, or end of June. They're due at the end of June. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, 
So my supervisor may be annoyed if I turn things in late, if I have a report that's due and I miss the deadline, but it's not a huge grant. It's just like a monthly or quarterly report that's due. They're going to be annoyed, but turning it in late doesn't break the system. Feeling responsible for kids, either in a classroom or social work capacity or like nursing capacity, whatever, everything can feel like glass. Mm -hmm. Like if you drop anything, kids are fragile and those relationships will break and it's important. Golly, yeah. So you have to talk to your supervisor sometimes to figure out what's glass and what's rubber. Can someone else help you with the rubber stuff? Um, this is especially hard for like the yes folks mm-hmm. who say yes to everything or those with people pleasing tendencies who often take on too much and never want to let anyone down or perfectionists who really struggle with everything being perfect. But sometimes things are made of rubber and it's okay to let the rubber things fall. Um, so I alluded to this earlier, but I'm going to tell you again. Between us, the first three weeks of COVID were pretty great yeah like everything was scary and i didn't want to be outside but everything was canceled Mm -hmm. like everything became rubber for the most part like meetings were canceled seeing clients was canceled seeing friends was canceled i took a bubble bath every night Mm -hmm. for like the first three weeks i cooked really good food i watched movies i did the online stupid trainings i have to do for work because Mm -hmm. i have anything else to do But I finally had time in the day to do the things that I wanted to do, and it felt nourishing. Mm -hmm. It didn't last long, of course. Um, Now we've adapted, and I have three times the number of meetings that I did before COVID because they're all virtual, and they can be back-to-back. But for those first three weeks of COVID, it didn't suck. Mm -hmm. Um, So during COVID, I feel like so much was illuminated for us about what can be dropped and what can't. Like, you and I connected early. I mean, we've been friends forever. But, Mm -hmm. like, during the early stages of COVID, like, we texted and we called each other. And um, you came and sat in my front yard a couple of times, I think. Um, We started to do the podcast over Mm -hmm. COVID because we had a little bit more free time. Um, I connected with the people in my neighborhood more. Like, those Mm -hmm. relationships were the things that I was juggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Figuring out how to not get COVID was a thing I was juggling that was obviously very important. Yes. But, like, I didn't have the same work expectations, so suddenly everything felt very doable for yeah. a minute. Mm-hmm. And then it, like, came back and hit me <laughs> with the f- full force in by the end of the, that calendar year. But evaluating your existing commitments and figuring out what you can cancel or reschedule just to lighten the burden in this moment, and remember to not always cancel or reschedule the fun stuff. The fun stuff is what keeps you sane. It's what keeps you going. So if you want to cancel on that one friend that you've been putting off forever because it's going to be a draining conversation, it's okay to cancel on that one friend. But canceling on your bestie that you haven't seen in six months because you've both been swamped, maybe that's the thing that you keep. Mm -hmm. So just figuring out what's truly important to you and what's connected to your values, what's connected to your sense of self. And those are the things that we have to prioritize. So the other thing that you can do is self-care. And I hate the idea of Mm self-care. It's like so often being sold as being extra nice to yourself when 
really people are just telling you to like meet your basic needs. Eating healthy food, getting plenty of sleep, exercise and play are not self-care tips. Those are like ways to stay healthy Mm -hmm. and live. Yeah. Period. That's another hill that I will die on another day. But basically, we need to be engaging in community care. So advocating for raises, reduced caseloads for all of our folks in direct care and service industries, demanding paid parental leave. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that we are a developed industrialized nation that does not have parental leave blows my mind. Um, community care means talking to the people that you trust, getting out of work brain, validating your sense of self-worth, maintaining relationships and giving yourself a break. I think for me that giving myself a break meant that if I showed up to work one day and I only had 20% of my energy to give and I gave 20%, that it was acknowledging that that was actually 100% of myself for that day. Mm -hmm. Like you can't give 100% if you don't have 100% to give. Right. And asking an employee or asking yourself to give 100% every day and not being able to reach that. Um, or, re- or replenish it, I think, is like the bigger issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you're, of course, you're going to start to have a negative perception of yourself because you're not able to always function at your top. You know, we function at our top as often as we can, but if you're not replenishing, then you don't have that chance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay, back to self-care. Take time off, whether it's caring for a loved one and needing to take a break from that or working a lot and taking a break, take time off. If you have two weeks of vacation a year, take it. If you can afford to, take time off. You cannot recover from burnout while consistently experiencing burnout. I agree. It's so hard when you feel like you can't... Take time off. Take time off. (laughs) Yeah. Because then you can't enjoy your time off. Right. So there's a larger issue there. Oh, absolutely. But I will say it it is nice when you actually can disconnect. So I talked to one of my friends who lives in Germany recently, and she was telling me that one of her coworkers is out on maternity leave. So I nosily asked, what's the maternity leave practice in Germany? Is it six months? Oh, my God. Are you ready for this? No. Girl, she gets 12 months of maternity leave. up. Plus six weeks before the baby is born so that she can prepare herself. Plus, if her spouse or partner also takes at least two months of maternity leave, then she gets a total of 14 months of maternity leave. What? Yeah. That's amazing. And you don't have to take it all at the same time. Yeah. So you can take six months right after the baby's born, and you just get to take the other six months sometime between when the baby is born and when the baby turns five. Mm -hmm. And it's paid for by the government, not by your job. Wow. That's a big difference. Right? That's huge. Especially because, I mean, God, parents are just magical. Oh, my gosh. Because, you know, you lose out on so much being away from your child. You know, yeah. we give up so much just to live. We Exactly. Exactly. And the outcomes for babies and parents who have to be away from their babies at an early stage in life mm-hmm. are a lot better worse than for parents who just get to be with their kids yeah and you know get used to being a new parent Mm -hmm. like that's a hard job imagine dealing with postpartum depression and working full-time and caring for a kid like yep and on top of that child care in the united states costs almost as much as going to a university does yikes i was talking with a guy today who pays four hundred dollars a week for child care for his 10 month old oh my god 
Yeah. I'm sure that's standard, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely that's, it is. That's not right. So, But I, I get it. I mean, that's how much it, I'm sure it costs to rear somebody else's child. I don't know. Well, most other developed countries in the world, the government subsidizes child care so that it's not as expensive because there's a value in early childhood education mm-hmm. that the United States has not yet invested in. Yeah. North Carolina, I think, is doing a good job of being ahead in that um, because we've had several governors um, who have really prioritized early childhood education. Coop. Coop and uh, Jim Hunt. Mm-hmm. Jim Hunt signed the um, Develop Smart Start, Establish mm-hmm. Smart Start. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we've had two really, really supportive governors, which is great. But I was asking my friend, I was like, okay, so my friend is a researcher. She's um, a biochem researcher. And I was like, that seems like a really specific task. How do you know or how do you, like, pick up the slack for somebody who's on medical leave because they're pregnant or just had a baby? Like, twelve a year is a long time to be gone. It is. But, yeah. So That's not considered reasonable. Right. Not in the United States, for, for sure. Business, yeah, for business needs. So I was like, how, how do, do you as an organization – how did y'all figure out how to navigate this? Because people are going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she said, what do you mean? We have nine months to prepare. Like, That's we true. know when, when someone is pregnant, if you tell us early on, we now have, like, a solid eight months before you are going out on leave that we can figure out how to divvy up your caseload. We can figure out how to you know, eliminate some of your projects or postpone some of your projects until you get back. Or bring in temporary labor. Bring in temporary labor that may become permanent labor afterwards. That is interesting about the redistribution of work. And I I don't know enough about, you know, workloads abroad, but I do know that there is the standard of being on vacation for a month. Yeah. So, like, there, there is a different expectation. Well, and I think, too, the priority is different. So, like, in... In many places around the world, the priority is not to make money or to, um, you know, make CEOs wealthy, but the priority is to make sure that you have a staff that's taken care of. Like, Mm -hmm. the priority is happiness. Yep. Um, And just thinking about how that shifts things. Like, if I have a case, if I teach in a classroom or have a caseload and I give you a month's notice that I'm going to be out for a week, you should be able to cover that. Yeah. So, yeah. or at least change the expectations. Yeah. You know, There's for while I'm gone. There's a lot that gone. falls through the cracks. Right. So we need a better sealant. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But if other countries can figure this out and not have the same burnout rates, yeah. surely we can figure it out, too. Yeah, we're too. doing something wrong. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so take time off was the moral of that. You cannot recover from burnout while consistently experiencing burnout. Deep breaths, meditation, yoga, vegging out on TikTok may help regulate you, but they are not actively taking steps to address the root cause of your burnout. You're going to end up back in burnout. Mm -hmm. So one of my recommendations is to do a values exercise. I did this with a staff recently. If you don't know what your values are, Do some work around developing those and figuring out where they may or may not be aligned with your work. And is there a way that you can change your work or change the way that your work is functioning around you to better align with your values? Because if you feel like you're doing something meaningful, 
then you have a new motivation that may help drive away burnout. So one of the values activities that I do with folks is much longer, I'm going to condense it, but think of times when you have been happy, experienced fulfillment or satisfaction, and whatever the third thing was, I think it was like being successful. From that, consider what it was about those times that had a positive impact on you and how that relates to your values. So for example, some of my values include feeling competent and knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. So like this podcast is really well aligned with my values. It gives me a platform for advocacy. It gives me a platform um, to share knowledge or to gain knowledge. Those are like some of the things that I really enjoy and hold dear as, um, you know, kind of guideposts for is my work meaningful? Mm -hmm. Am I learning? Am I sharing knowledge? Am I able to advocate? You could also do a strengths finder activity, which just helps you identify your strengths and um, use your strengths in your work. Because if you are kind of fighting against things that you're not naturally good at, it that can be exhausting as well. Like I know that some of my strengths are being very future focused and feeling and um, uh, being strategic. So feeling like I'm stuck in the same rut month after month, week after week is really deteriorating for me because I don't feel like I'm able to be future minded. Like I'm kind of stuck in what is the mundane that's happening right now. So knowing those things, I can communicate those to my supervisor, I can communicate those to my team, and then we can figure out how to play on each other's strengths so that we have the leveled expectations of what we're all actually able to accomplish. Very good job. I love it. Thank you so much. Burnout sucks. Moral of the story. Moral of the story, burnout sucks. Find a job that's not stressful, pays well, and doesn't overwork you. Amen. Let's take a quick break, get another Larry Flint Marti- Larry Flint Filthy Martini. Yep, nailed and it. And when we come back, we are talking about Manifest Destiny. I need more pickles, too. All right, so put on your suspenders and get out (laughs) your mining gear, because we are talking about Manifest Destiny today. I love it. What's the name of the game that was like the wagon? Shut up. My next line is question, did you play Oregon Trail? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did play Oregon Trail. Oh my God. We all died from dysentery. And, And I was like seven, so it happened very early. But that's that's a legit fear, and people did die, and we will cross that bridge. I can't think of dysentery without thinking of Mrs. Doubtfire and the little girl, Susan? No. Matilda? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but whatever her name is, yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire, <laughs> um, going, what is dysentery? <laughs> With her, like, very sweet little lisp. Sweet baby angel. Sweet baby angel. Um, dysentery is where you poop a lot. Yes, yes, and you die. Um, so I was familiar with Manifest Destiny as a concept uh, before starting my research, but I was under the impression that it referred to just westward expansion 
um, you know, of non-Native folk after the colonial war. That's basically all I knew. But it's also because Jesus told them to, right? Exactly. So what I didn't know was the root of the why as far as the westward expansion. Mm. So manifest destiny is a term coined in 1845, and it's the idea uh, that the U.S. is destined by God to expand its domain and, quote, spread democracy and capitalism across the entire North American continent, end quote. And also spread Jesus. Yes. So... Well, it's, it's you own it because God told you to, is basically the concept. Right, right. So my um, little cousin just recently graduated from a university that has its tight with the big man upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I logged into her like graduation because I couldn't be there in person. And um, I logged in about the time that they were saying that the purpose of their university and their graduates was to make Jesus famous um, by spreading the Lord's word throughout the land. He's already famous. He's got the best-selling book. Like, number one bestseller. Time. Number one. <laughs> New York Translated Times. into the most languages. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but God told me to go and spread capitalism across the United States. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, instead of just an internal personal journey across the land, it's the actual expansion of the U.S. as the country. Mm. So, in the first half of the 19th century, there was a boom in the U.S. population. The population went from about 5 million people in 1800 to over 23 million in 1850. That's a big... Talk about a baby boom. (laughs) Well, they were coming from other places. (laughs) Uh, This, along with two separate depressions that happened in 1819 and 1839, forced folks to migrate west. President Thomas Jefferson kicked off the U.S.'s expansion in 1803 with the... Louisiana Purchase. I was stuck on Thomas Jefferson's coming home. <laughs> so I guess we could say that he's coming home to purchase Louisiana. Yeah, but he was coming home... For other reasons. Before that. Right. Obviously, because he was president. Um, so the country... or So contrary to popular belief, the Louisiana Purchase wasn't just the purchase of Louisiana. It was the purchase of 828,000 square miles that stretched from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains and extended, um, it, it essentially doubled the size of the U.S. in one fail swoop. Um, so essentially, the way that it were, was, was like half of modern day Louisiana. It was Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, half of North Dakota, Montana, half of Wyoming, half of Colorado, uh, a piece of New Mexico, and Texas. And it even peaked up into Canada. So it was like, I mean, it literally doubled the size of the country. An expensive and big purchase. Yeah, well. Any buyer's remorse, you think, from that? I don't think so. They got it for 64 cents an acre. Shit. Yeah. It's a good deal. It's a pretty good deal. Um, so France had controlled the Louisiana territory from 1699 until it was given to Spain in 1762. Isn't the idea of land ownership kind of silly? It is. And we will, we will kind of get to it. Okay. In 1800, our boy Napoleon, holla. Hey, uh, it's going to be a Napoleon season. Yeah. Napoleon Polo, who? 
That was bad. Okay. <laughs> um, so he negotiated to regain the territory as part of his efforts to reestablish a French colonial empire in North America. But he did, however, negotiate to sell it to Thomas Jefferson and was eager to gain control. Um, who, Thomas Jefferson was eager to gain control of New Orleans in that port. Like I said, at the end of the day, the U.S. paid 64 cents an acre, which is a hell of a deal, in my opinion. Sure. Uh, One of Thomas Jefferson's top priorities was finding out more information about the land surrounding the U.S. territories. One of the biggest projects was trying to determine if there was a waterway that spread the length of the land from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. Um, Because, of course, that would make trade just so much easier. Yep. So he had read many books and articles about explorers who had taken, um, you know, expeditions to the West. Uh, so what does he do? He, he wants to do one of his own. Enter Lewis and Clark. I was wondering yeah. if they were going to make an appearance in this episode. They sure do. So the Lewis and Clark expedition, also known as the Corps of Discovery, was a hand-picked group of U.S. Army and civilian volunteers under the command of Captain Meriwether Lewis. Great name. Right? And his BFF, 2nd Lieutenant William Clark. Meriwether and William? Yes. Meriwether, Meriwether and William. Got it. Lieutenant William Clark. Um, so, in total, there were 30 of them, and they set out from Camp Wood, Illinois, on May 14, 1804. They met up with 10 others uh, on their way into Missouri, and then headed up to, like, headed up the Missouri River. Uh, the, they reached the Pacific Ocean in 1805, and on this journey was <clears throat> also the very famous icon, Sacagawea. And I read a lot of articles about how to pronounce her name. Is it Sacagawea, or have we all been pronouncing it wrong no, most it of is. our lives? No, oh, it okay. is. There's a, a bunch of different ways you can spell it, though. Is that actually her her name, though? So, Because I yes. know that we don't have a great track record for keeping people's actual names when we tell stories about them. From my understanding, it was. Okay, good. I don't think that she... Because from my understanding, she kept her original name. Good. Glad to hear it. So she was uh, Shoshone. Uh, She was a Shoshone woman who joined the expansion when the team arrived in North Dakota. It was really important for the team to have an interpreter who could help them to communicate with other Native communities as they encountered them. Um, Sacagawea, do you know how old she was? Ooh, uh, 16. She was 16. 42. She was 16. Can you imagine? I mean, she's she's a badass for sure. 42. No, she was 16. She was a 16-year-old badass. So how was it that she came to join the group? Well, at the age of 13, she was captured by a rival uh, native tribe and was sold into a non-consensual marriage to a man, to a French man named Toussaint Chablablablah. Well, we hate him, obviously. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Um, he also had a second wife who was also native uh, and was also purchased. Um, and this asshole was also an interpreter. And so they joined the excursion and he brought Sacagawea with him. So I didn't, I had no idea about any of that. No, me either. Well, and of course that goes back to like the stories and who tells them and how are they told and mm-hmm. who does it benefit when they're told that way. Yeah. But like the story of Sacagawea as a 
indigenous person who willingly chose to join is a much better story yeah. than like she was bought and her horrible husband yeah. was also there. Yep. Yep. Uh, Sacagawea was pregnant and gave birth while on the journey. Her son, what John a Baptiste. I know, right? Um, so her son was said to have been the most traveled member of the expedition. And during this expedition, members of the team created maps of the land. That was basically their purpose was to document, you know, what was what was happening around them, documenting the flowers and the plant life and even like bringing back specimens to study. Now, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea were doing their journey on foot, but for families in larger communities that were crossing the land, it was the Oregon Trail that allowed them to do so. Um, they would have to prepare greatly for a journey like that uh, and basically risk their, their lives. How many of them died from dysentery? Oh, my God. So many. So, I mean, so many. It, it, it's just... No clean water. There, there's no roads. There's, like, <laughs> like a couple people have gone. Like, ugh, God, it's so... Um, so they would have had to prepare greatly for the journey. And I know you're asking, how does one prepare for such a trip? That was exactly what I was about to ask you. The first step is that you have to sell your home and your businesses, anything. Like, if you're fully moving to California, you just sell all your shit. Yep. Sell it all. Checks out. Yeah. Uh, And from that money that you received, you would purchase provisions, flour, sugar, salt, lots of salt. Uh Uh-huh. Guns, you know, because you're a big gun person. Right. Ammunition coffee i mean come on obviously Um, what's a trip without coffee and water barrels sure um and you also have to update your ride hashtag van life yeah for real um the covered wagon was the most important piece of equipment you could ever have it was the house you know housed all your items it housed you uh it gave you a place to ride during the journey and the dimensions of the covered wagon were actually six feet by 12. What? Isn't that big? That's so much bigger than I thought. I know. It's, it's really big, actually. Um, and, it, I mean, it makes sense because it had to be large enough to, you know, house all of your stuff, uh, but light enough to be pulled by your oxen. So, wait, how big is this room that we're in? It's probably no like six feet this way. Maybe yeah. not quite 12 this way. No, it's, I mean, think of offices are 10 by 10. So larger than that, like longer cool. than that. Yeah. yeah. So a yeah. decent amount of space. Yeah, pretty big. Long, longer than I expected. So they were made of hardwoods uh, and they had a large oiled canvas that stretched over the wooden frame. A few other important things to consider when you're planning your journey is the time of year that you're leaving and how long it will take you to get there. I was actually thinking, because you said they left in May, mm-hmm. so you're going to hit, like, those really hot states, like yeah. Texas, New Mexico, they Arizona. They were coming from Illinois, so they weren't hitting Texas, but, okay. but yeah, no, it's hot. It's during the summer. Right. So, but I guess that's better than the winter, depending on which way you're going. So you have to think about, at least from the food perspective, things are coming, things are ready to harvest in the spring. Right. So you have to wait until you have the food. So there's like a weird time frame, right? Um, But if you wanted to arrive to your destination before the winter began, like the winter snow, you would need to leave by April or May at the latest. 
not only because of the cold temperatures, but you also have to think about other factors, including whether there would be enough grass along the way to feed the livestock. I mean, that's huge. Like if your if your ox die, what are you going to do? What are you going? You're stranded. Yeah, and, and unless and a nice Samaritan comes along and gives right. you one. But you know, so if you leave too early, your animals could starve to death. Um, so it's a very complex. It's not great. Like it's not good. Yeah, none of none of it is is a, a sure thing. Give it like another hundred years, yeah. and there will be better ways to you travel. You can buy a twenty five dollars Spirit airline ticket. Okay, not a hundred years, but quite more. But so when you leave on your journey across the Oregon Trail, you most likely are traveling with others. I would hope so. Which is smart. I mean, you got, yeah, you don't strength wanna, in numbers. Yeah, um, and remember that the Oregon Trail is about two thousand miles long. It's a route that stretches from Independence, Missouri to Oregon City, Oregon. The trail weaves through Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and finally Oregon. The first major stop on the route was in Fort Kearney, Nebraska. And towns started popping up around these pit stops, and vendors and merchants would capitalize on the increased business that happened every spring. 600 miles from Fort Kearney was the next stop, which is like a really far, really, 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 long really far. Um, when was, you're going like four to 10 miles an hour. Yeah, oh, for sure. So that was Fort Laramie, Wyoming. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's okay. It's in Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after that, you'd go for a large stretch of desert where you would have hot, hot days and frigid nights, cold, cold. Yeah, because the desert is weird. Right. Because there's nothing to hold on to the heat. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's I never thought about it like that. Um, Independence Rock was the, the next landmark, which marked halfway. And if you reached this by July 4th, you knew that you were making good time. Many people carved their names into the rocks um, at this particular stop to show that they had made it that far, which is smart because, you know, a lot of people disappeared. Yeah, so there was no cell phone. Yeah, at least they knew that they had made it that far. Yeah. I mean, how else are you going to alert your loved ones that they're still there and to keep going? And From there, they would navigate to the Snake River Canyon, which was a steep and dangerous climb over the Blue Mountains, and finally to Oregon City. Uh, You could continue on if you wanted to to go to California, or you may settle or try to recoup from the trauma of the past months. (laughs) I read an article that was interesting. It talked about how the Oregon Trail was romanticized, and I was like, I don't think I feel that way. I, I'm like dysentery Oregon Trail. Like, well, I feel like I'm aware of the reality of it. <laughs> I feel like the Oregon Trail may be romanticized kind of in the way that Route 66 is. Like, it's True. this long, winding thing. True. That's a good point. You know, and especially historically before we had as much access to information as we do now, I can mm-hmm. see how that would easily be romanticized. That's true. That's true. Well, and also, like, people are obsessed with, like, cowboys and, quote, Indians. Like, that whole fucking yeah. trope. Yeah. Well, and, Ugh. you know, new opportunities and... True. Like, a different scenery. I don't know. Yeah. But, romantic or not, on average, one in ten people did not survive the journey. So, 10%. Shit. Yeah. That's a really high percentage. Yeah. But, to be honest, it's better than I thought it would be. Like... One in ten, at least, you know. Sure. 
I I was surprised. I thought it would be like four and ten or something. Do we know how many people? I don't have that stat okay. now. I think it's hard to tell because, you know, there was like no documentation. Right. So but, uh, they're guessing about one in ten. Then they are guessing. It's all it's all an illusion. Life is an illusion. Uh, but most people died from disease. Uh, dysentery. Dysentery. Smallpox, the flu, cholera. They were all deadly on the Oregon Trail. You could also be crushed under your wagon wheel or drown while crossing a river. Or <laughs> attacked by a bear. Also, yeah. apparently the bear population and apple um, along the Appalachian Trail has gotten really aggressive lately. They've closed pieces of the Appalachian Trail to overnight hikers because so many people have been attacked by bears. Oh, God. Yeah. So I don't like fact. that bears can like open doors and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. Um, but it was definitely, uh, you know, it was definitely dangerous. And if you passed away on the Oregon Trail, you would be buried where you where you fell. where you fell. Yeah. So there were there are a lot of graveyards that started popping up, you know, around the trail. Right. Um, it was definitely more dangerous for those who crossed in its first couple of years. Uh, but as time went on, the journey began to become easier because the trail became more and more defined. Um, and people started leaving notes and signals or, or messages for folks to indicate that there was danger up ahead or that a particular part of the river was easier to cross. Um, so people looked out for each other. They also started to, you know, let's say let's say our group went across and we built a, pr- a bridge. Uh-huh. The next group of people would reinforce the bridge and add a handrail or something. It was very communal. And oh, I love that. People, Community people care. Leave it better than you found it, right? Right, right. Um, but it, you know, it, it was, uh, a revolutionary time. Uh, but what was also revolutionary was something, I don't know if you've heard of it, called the gold rush. There's gold in their heels? Or was that the other way around? There's hills in their gold? <laughs> <laughs> I meant East Coast versus West Coast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they were, they were going for the gold. Go for the gold. Yes. Um, quote, on January 8th, 1848, James W. Marshwell, overseeing the construction of a sawmill in Sutter's Mill in the territory of California, literally struck gold. Literally. Literally. Not figuratively. No. His discovery of trace flecks of the precious metal in the soil at the bottom of the American River sparked a massive migration of settlers and miners into California in search of gold. The gold rush, as it became known, transformed the landscape and population of California. Arriving in covered wagons, clipper ships, and on horseback, some 300,000 migrants known as 49ers, uh, named for the year that they began to arrive in California, 1849, which makes sense. Oh, fun fact. Um, they staked claims to spots of the land around the river where they would use pans to extract gold from silt deposits. Prospectors came not just from the eastern and southern United States, but from Asia, Latin America, Europe, and Australia as well. Improvements in steamship and railroad technology facilitated this migration, which dramatically reshaped the demographics of California. In 1849, California established a state constitution and government and formally entered the Union in 1850. 
So life as a 49er. Though migration to California was fueled by gold-tinted visions of easy wealth and luxury, life as a 49er could be brutal. Hence the dysentery. Might there be some burnout? Might there be some burnout? Literally, it's hot. (laughs) The sun is hot. While a small number of prospectors did become rich, the reality was that gold panning rarely turned out anything of real value, and the work itself was backbreaking. The lack of housing, sanitation, and law enforcement in the mining camps and surrounding areas created a dangerous mix. Crime rates in the gold fields were extremely high. Vigilante justice was frequently the only response to criminal criminal activity left unchecked by the absence of effective law enforcement. That makes sense. Yeah, that checks out. The Wild West. Uh, But as prospectors dreaming of gold poured into the region, formerly settled lands became populated and previously small settlements such as the one of San Francisco exploded. That's when the market really got bad in San Francisco is when all those people came in. (laughs) Um, Looking for gold. Looking for gold. Um, As competition flared over access to the gold fields, xenophobia and racial prejudice ran rampant. Chinese and Latin American immigrants were routinely subject to violent attacks at the hands of white settlers and miners who adhered to America's narrow view of what was meant to be truly American. Yes. End quote. Um, I heard a really profound quote the other day, and I'm going to do my best. Actually, can I find it really quickly? Sure. Okay. It's from Toni Morrison, and it says, In this country... American means white, and everyone else has to hyphenate. Mm. So black American, Asian American, like, you Mm -hmm. all have to hyphenate. Otherwise, it's assumed that American means white. 100%. And that is from um, a prose that Toni Morrison wrote by that name. Mm -hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, that leads us into my next section, which talks about uh, the you know, the impact of, you know, westward expansion on Native folks um, on... I knew we were going to get here, and yeah. still I'm not sure I'm ready for it. So it's this, rough. this piece comes from an article uh, entitled Manifest Destiny and Indian Removal. Quote, the self-serving concept of Manifest Destiny, the belief that the expansion of the United States was divinely ordained, justifiable, and inevitable was used to rationalize the removal of American Indians from their native homelands. Fuck. Yep. Mm -hmm. In the minds of white Americans, the Indians were not using the land to its full potential, and they uh, reserved, as they reserved large tracts of unspoiled lands for hunting, leaving the land uncultivated. If the land was not being cultivated, then the land was being wasted. Americans declared that it was their duty, their manifest destiny, with compelling them which compelled them to seize, settle, and cultivate the land. Not surprisingly, the most active supporters of the Manifest Destiny and proponents of Indian removal were those who practiced land speculation. Land speculators bought large tracts of land with the expectation that the land would quickly increase in value as more people settled into the West and demanded for the Western land increased. As the Western land was admitted to the Union, it was sequentially increased in value. Um, A form of Indian removal was first proposed by one of our founding fathers, 
Thomas Jefferson. (gasps) Fuck him, too. Checks out. Yep. Unlike African Americans, Jefferson believed that Indians were uh, of equal, uh, were equal to whites, quote, in body and mind. Yet Jefferson found them culturally inferior due to their lifestyle and traditions. He believed that their that their semi-nomadic lifestyles, communal agricultural practices, and hunting to hunting traditions did not use the land effectively. It's all about the land. Well, it's all about how much money you can make. Yes, it's all about capitalism. Yes, which is literally in the definition. Yeah. So yes. It was assumed that if the Indians adopted a European style of agriculture and settled in European style towns and villages, only then would they pro- would they program from their natural quote savage state to quote civilization. It bothers me that civilization had at, even at that point already come to mean that if you are not making money or giving money or receiving money, then you are not valuable. Mm -hmm. Civilization should not equal capitalism. Yeah, I agree. Like, that's disgusting. Yeah. That you would place someone's entire value, their culture and everything, and say it's not worthy because you don't have the social capital. Mm -hmm. I agree. And some of the, the founding civilizations of this world probably would have been deemed you know unworthy like the Mayans and the Egyptians and but and I think that it goes to how do we measure the success of a country Mm -hmm. so we in the United States have the gross domestic product the GDP which is how we sort of measure success right there's a country in Asia I think it's Bahrain that has a gross domestic happiness product Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they're still not one of the happiest countries in the world, but at least they're tracking it. They're trying to figure out, like, how they can measure happiness and improve the happiness of the folks who live there. And it's not related to capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like, having a lot of money doesn't equate being happy. Or having ownership over things, being materialistic, doesn't mean happiness. Yeah, and ownership is definitely a big... A big component of this. Big component of this, yes. It's an, it's its entire uh, identity, essentially. Um, but Jefferson's beliefs on civilization were formed from the Enlightenment ideas of environmentalism, which dictated that a human's environment is shaped by their culture. It reminds me of in Across the Universe when they're at the table at Thanksgiving and his uncle's talking to him about um, what he does defines him. And he's like, no, what... Who I am defines me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What I do defines who I am, not who you are defines what you do. Right. Um, But Jefferson's intentions were not as socially motivated as they were economic. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, There it is. Um, If um, abandoned their hunting grounds that then freed up the land for white settlements, that would be great. The Louisiana Purchase, of course, of 1803 provided a neat solution for Jefferson, one of which um, Indians would not have to choose between assimilation and extermination. Oh, fuck. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. The government would relocate Indians further westward, delaying the inevitable, um, you know, overtaking of their land. Right. uh, While opening up the uh, vacated lands to white settlement. Later, President James Monroe expanded on Jefferson's ideas and beliefs on Indian removal in an 1825 address to Congress. 
He abandoned the idea that the Indians could be assimilated into white culture, and he argued that, therefore, it would be the, the be of the benefit of the tribes to be removed from their land for their well-being. The removal of the tribes from the territory uh, which they now inhabit would not only shield them from, you know, impending ruin by promoting their welfare and happiness. So he's saying that experience has clearly demonstrated that in their present state, it is impossible to incorporate them in such masses in any form whatsoever into our system. Yikes. Maybe we shouldn't then. Oh, yeah. Leave them alone. Right. Leave Brittany alone. Maybe we should not expand. Maybe God is not saying. Yeah go across the country and take whatever you want because maybe we're not entitled i mean we're also so far removed from this that that's easy for us to reflect on and say yeah that's so true it has that group think mentality i mean just people just falling into the ignorance of what is around them absolutely and not seeing the value in diversity mm -hmm. or not seeing the value in um, trying to figure out how other people perceive reality. Mm, correct. Or experience their own reality. All right. So we're switching to President Jackson. So in 1835, Jackson wrote, quote, All preceding experiments of the improvement of the Indians have failed. It seems now to be an established fact that they cannot live in contact with a civilized community and prosper. End quote. Blech. Gross. The Trail of Tears was then proposed, um, and the removal was not met with gratitude or, jo or joy by the majority of American Indians forced to leave their homelands. American Indian participation in removal was meant to be voluntary, and the act required the U.S. government to negotiate fairly with the tribes, but it was not often the result. Did you say uh, grateful or joy? Yeah. <laughs> I did. That's really bold of us to assume yeah. that folks would be grateful or experience joy when we say, hey, please leave. A hundred percent. Yeah. Many tribes were forcibly removed from their lands, in particular the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickawa, and Seminole. Sorry if I mispronounced any of those. Um, this series of forced migration became known as the Trail of Tears. Uh, not all were in favor of removal. The most vocal and prominent among those opposing uh, was Tennessee Congressman and American frontiersman, uh, Lord David, oh, Davy Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he was real. That's, I have a Davy, that's who that is. Davy, Davy Crockett. Um, in 1834, Crockett stated his opposition that if the next president, Martin Van Buren, continued Jackson's uh, Indian pol uh, policies, Crockett would move to, quote, the wildest of Texas. What a threat. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know the saying, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise? Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. So, my grandparents used to say it, like, mm -hmm. are you going to church tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And my grandfather would be, would say, uh, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Meaning, yeah, I'm going if, yeah. you know. Hell or high water. Hell or high water, right. Except that it wasn't referring to water. It was referring to the Creek Indians. <gasps> so the Ooh. the belief was that the Creek Indians were especially violent. And if they didn't come and kill you, then, then you would be a church. Right. Oh. So it's actually not a great thing to say. Okay. But that's the history of the phrase, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Wow. Well, speaking of that, 
unfortunately, of the 15,000 Creek who marched to their new home in Oklahoma, only 3,500 survived the journey. Wow. Similarly, of the 16,000 Cherokee who were forced to move uh, from several southeastern states to present-day Oklahoma, 4,000 died due to disease, starvation, and adverse weather conditions. Um, In all, tens of thousands of American Indians Uh, Some estimated as close to 100,000 lost their lives and their homelands in the series of forced migrations, which lasted through the 1840s. Wow. So I think it's important, obviously, that we understand there are so many layers to how our country got to where it is today. uh, And just to be mindful. Yeah, this is a topic that we haven't talked about before. And I'm so glad that you started with Manifest Destiny Mm -hmm. because I think in schools we're taught that like Manifest Destiny was a great thing. Like that's what got us, you know, to California and then the gold rush, which is Mm -hmm. all really exciting. But the result of that is thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying, um, people who were here long before us who did not have a desire to own the land or to, you know, create profit from the land, Mm -hmm. who were just, you know, living their lives. Yeah. It's about priorities. And I think every Thanksgiving, we all have that, like, conversation with ourselves about the real meaning of Thanksgiving. And that's a great opportunity to reflect on it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I must hate that we didn't save this for a Thanksgiving episode now that you mention it. But, <laughs> That's a long way away. <laughs> but no, this is such a good topic and good in that it's good to be mindful of the impact of, you know, our beliefs or the things that um, we pursue and how they can impact others. So mm-hmm. really, really well done. So how does Manifest Destiny relate to burnout? Um... So I think there's a component of like community care. We talked about it a little bit, but like taking care of the people around you, um, connection. Yeah, your solutions. I think it also has some parallels with the problem. Um, Overdoing it. Right, yeah. Let's calm down a little bit. Let's not force it. Exactly. They're both rooted in capitalism. So Manifest Destiny was rooted in capitalism and under the guise of religion. Mm -hmm. And burnout is also rooted in capitalism. Um, And then under the guise of that's a personal problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's not a personal problem. And you weren't doing it for God. You were doing it for profit. So the moral of the story is to burn it all down. Don't be a dick and burn it all down. D-bad. D-bad. Beautiful. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We're in 50-something as far as we got a good number of episodes. We got to know what episode we're on. We we forget. (laughs) (laughs) 50 past us. We didn't even celebrate it. Um, but we are so happy to be going on this journey together. If you guys like what we're doing, head over to our Instagram. You can find us at pod without an odd. Feel free to send us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com. We are not on Facebook, but we would love for you to slide into our DMs and all the other places that you can find us. That's correct. If you love what we're doing and want to support the production of our show, head on over to patreon.com. We've got some fun little blurbs that get posted every... 
every time we post on Instagram and it's just kind of a little bit more, uh, you know, a little behind the scenes, little behind the scenes and, um, you know, you can talk to us directly there. So, yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you blink twice. If you blink twice, then you support us. What would I say? <laughs> if, uh, you support, <laughs> if you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. <sighs> Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.